Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Lindsay Benner, performance artist and entertainer extraordinaire. Some have described her as what you'd get if Lucille Ball and Charlie Chaplin had a love child who likes to juggle. On this episode, I speak with the sexy and silly and completely charming entertainer as we discuss her unique mix of cabaret and comedy with juggling. Lindsay has had a decade-long career as a street performer, and we discuss the process of what goes into her street performance. One part I found so fascinating is what Lindsay calls the joy of the drop and what that means to her in juggling, which can be applied to so many things in life. Lindsay made history by being the only non-magician ever to be nominated for one of the Magic Castle Awards. She mixes classic vaudeville tricks with this seductive and theatrical spin, which is so fun. And she also produces the only all-female variety show in LA called Women in Vaudeville. Please enjoy this fun interview with the fabulous Lindsay Benner. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining. I had mentioned to you before, but I've told so many people that you're going to be on the show because I love tricks and treats and all these actions. And I'm like, I'm going to have a juggler on my show. And people are like, (laughs) what did you say? (laughs) So I'd first like to thank Kayla Drescher, the amazing magician who introduced us. And so thank you to Kayla. I love Kayla. She's so great. I love her podcast too. Shazam is just Excellent. If you want to check out some feminist magic podcasts. Exactly. (laughs) And one of my favorite quotes of all time happens to be about you. So I'm going to quote Genie Magazine that says, Lindsay Benner is what you would get if Lucille Ball and Charlie Chaplin had a love child who also likes to juggle. (laughs) This is my favorite quote because there's so many things that I want to ask you about just in that alone. Um, But I know a lot of my listeners like to hear background stories. And so if you don't mind rewinding your very long highlight reel, and really sharing where you grew up. I grew up in Berkeley, California, very intellectual, delightful town. I miss its weather a little bit living in LA. It's very hot here, (laughs) but I went to University of Connecticut. And then when I returned from school, I had majored in acting. I was an acting major. And so very heavily involved in theater. I mean, my whole reason for going to school at all in high school was so that I could be part of the play. So <laughs> that was kind of a clear path for me because there wasn't really anything else that inspired me as much as theater and performing. So I was determined to find a way to make a living being a performer. And it's not an easy path, which is why they say if you can do something else, you should do something else because <laughs> it is not for the faint of heart and it is for those who are truly devoted to it. How did you pick the University of Connecticut? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. I almost went to the University of Santa Cruz, which would have been a little closer to home, but I got into the University of Connecticut. I got a scholarship there and I had a very last minute audition when I just went to look at it. And I thought, oh, there's no way I'm going to this college. This is totally, this is not my scene. I was kind of into the lifestyle more Santa Cruz, but they had a professional theater on campus. And that was very appealing to me to be able to work at a professional theater while also in school. So I checked it out and they told me there was no way that they could ever let me in because they were already full, but they would go ahead and audition me just because I had come all that way. And so I went ahead and I auditioned and they and of course, because I didn't care that much, my audition went amazing. <laughs> and they said, oh, that's it. You're in. We want you. You're incredible. And I felt really special and awesome. And I had this big decision to make when I was deciding which school to go to. And I looked at all that I knew that I would learn going into an environment that was so different from the one that I grew up in, or I could stick with what I knew and go to UC Santa Cruz and be a part of a culture that I'd already understood and been so deeply enmeshed in by growing up in Berkeley, California. So I decided that the, the most educational and the most opportunity for growth was in going to University of Connecticut and I got a scholarship there. So I that's why I ended up at University of Connecticut. <laughs> I'm curious, what performance did you audition with? Yeah, the performance I auditioned was uh, Irma, the character Irma with the play Mad Woman of Shio. She has this really sweet ingenue monologue that I took with me for many years. <laughs> and I performed that. And then I believe, I can't remember, I think I did the ring speech, which is classic. I think they won't allow you to do it. Audition for New York, <laughs> NYU anymore because it's so <laughs> it's so overdone. But I did the ring speech, I believe, from Shakespeare. I put it together and they totally had those stars in their eyes when they looked at me. And I, that felt <laughs> real good. And so... I decided to go with that more frightening, more far away from home, completely different environment, different culture. And it was the absolute right decision. I think living on the East Coast when I had only grown up in Northern California and understanding how to then interact with people who are from the East Coast was one of the best parts of my education. It was one of the most important pieces of my education, I'd say. I had a similar experience. I went to Berkeley, but I grew up in, in Northern California. And I told my parents after I graduated, I would go to New York for a year or two. And then 10 years later, <laughs> I moved back. But the 10 years in New York in my 20s was the best education that I ever gave myself. And I encourage people to do it if they can. And so you graduated University of Connecticut with a performance arts degree. What did you do next? I moved back home because there was a very lively theater, regional theater world in the Bay Area. And so I had sort of set my sights on being a regional theater actress, even though it doesn't really exist anymore <laughs> like it maybe once did. As I was auditioning for shows and I was getting into a couple of things here and there, I had some friends who were making a living being street performers in San Francisco. And I had some pretty good juggling skills. You know, I was part of the juggling club in college and I learned how to juggle fire for this master's puppet program of Faust where it was this big outdoor show where we ended up lighting Faust on fire with a bunch of fire jugglers. And so I was like, I have to learn how to <laughs> juggle torches so that I can be a part of the show. And so I did. And we all came out and we juggled torches and we lit 
house on fire and he just, it was a one night only show and all of the puppets were made of cardboard. It was a spectacle that I will always cherish the memory of. And so I had these basic skills that I thought, well, these aren't good enough to be a street performer because I thought street performers had to have circus level skills. But a friend of mine who had street performed for a few years said, no, you, if you know how to juggle torches, you have a finale. And if you have a finale, you have a show. And so he taught me the structure of a street show and how to put together a street show so that I could keep people's attention. And to just describe the type of street show that I was doing, it was called the circle show. So that means you gather a crowd, you do a full show, and then you hat, what we call hatting, which is you encourage people to donate for the show that they just saw and give you a little something in your hat. And then you collect it at the very end of the show. Other forms of street performing is like music and people just walk by and we call them walk by acts. And you just, you put a little money in, in their ducket, whatever they have out. And they just play for a certain period of time or a statue act and they're just there. And so if you walk by, you can put some money in their hat if you were entertained or Bushman was a very popular one. (laughs) He would scare people. He would hide behind a random, you know, (laughs) bush he had made himself and then scare people. And it was this huge spectacle. People would gather and tip him very aggressively encouraged to. (laughs) After the heart attack, here you go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So my friend gave me this structure And I got some other advice that I think was the most important piece of advice in order to do a street show, which doing a street show, it still remains one of the most terrifying things I've ever made myself follow through with. (laughs) That is a sign of my dedication to being a professional entertainer. I saw this opportunity to take what I had and make money with it in this very non-conventional way I would have never thought of, but it was so terrifying. I can't even... I would feel sick to my stomach every time I knew I was about to do a street show. But a friend of mine really prepared me for how hard it was going to be to actually gather the crowd, get them to stay, and then to hat. He gave me the the best piece of advice. His name is Pete Sweet. And he said, what you've got to do is just gather an edge for your first week. That's all you have to do. You don't have to keep them. If you've gathered an edge, if you've made people stop for a second and you have an edge of people, even if you lose them, you've won. For the first week, that's all you have to do. Don't think about anything else. And so I really was prepared mentally for that eventuality. So I wasn't thinking, oh, if I just go out there and I try to do a show and it doesn't work, then that means I can't do it. It's not going to work out for me. Because that's what I saw that happen to a lot of street performers who would try. They would buy all the equipment. They would have their portable speaker and their battery and their juggling equipment. And they'd have all the things and they'd get ready and they'd go out there and they'd try to do a show and they couldn't keep a crowd and they would never come back. They would just be totally scared and they they wouldn't come back because they thought, I can't do that. That's too difficult. But I had this wonderful piece of advice knowing that, okay, I'm not going to keep them. (laughs) So (laughs) let go of that. Keep learning and keep edging your way into a place where you will eventually get there. Well, I would love to hear the continuation of that process. So week one goal is to keep the edge, but I'm curious, and I'd love to hear week two and three and and onwards, but sure. during week one, when you attracted the edge, 
what would you do to them or with them <laughs> once you had them? So this was a cool thing that happened. So I had that in my head that it was going to take a week. So my first show, I went out there. I didn't have a sound system or anything. It was just me and a bucket, three torches, some juggling equipment and some props that I had made up, some silly routine And I was like, okay, here we go. And I light the torches and that's immediately people will stop, right? So I light the torches, everyone's sort of stops, right? And then what you have to do is you have to try to get them to come closer to you and to stand in an orderly fashion so that after people keep stopping, that they stop in an orderly way and they get closer to you and then they have a better time and you get better tips. (laughs) So I got some people to stop. And then I just started yelling at them, you know, very (laughs) aggressively, because that's what a lot of guys did. They would be very aggressive and it was kind of charming and and cute and they just knew what they were doing and I didn't. So I just kind of was hacking away at (laughs) trying to get them to stay and it didn't work out so great. (laughs) They didn't really like (laughs) me yelling at them. They immediately, I mean, they could just smell it that I didn't know what I was doing and they just like, oh God, and they all just left. And I think like three people stayed because they felt bad for me. And so I tried to do, I just kept hacking away, trying to get there, trying, I tried using my props. You needed three volunteers. I only had like two people there and I just used what I had and I got as far as I could. I didn't make it to my finale and I didn't expect to. And a funny side note is that (laughs) I had never actually done my finale because it was hard for me to actually get somebody to let me stand because my finale was taking two people I'd never met, having them stand across from each other with their arms crossed. I would stand on their arms that were crossed and I would then juggle torches. And this was the finale. This is like a sort of classic finale because it's tall and you can do it anywhere because you just need people. But I hadn't, I'm very shy and I don't like bothering people or annoying people. So I never insisted that my friends let me stand on them and practice this. So I knew what I was going to do, but I had never done it. (laughs) So But I knew that I wasn't going to get to do it for the first week anyway. So I was like, I have time. It's fine. So after I quote unquote failed, I succeeded by getting an edge and then I lost them as I expected to. And then I kind of reworked my idea of how I needed to be since being aggressive didn't work. I thought, oh, I could lower my status. This is like a clown thing of like status is kind of one of the things you study in clowning. And I thought, well, I'll lower my status. I'll be a wash woman. And I won't talk at all in the beginning. And I'll light the torches and I'll leave the torches burning. And then I'll have a bucket with a squirt bottle and some water in it. it. Once people stop, I'll then wash a place for them to stand. And that will be how I get them to stand where I want them to stand. Not yelling at them to stand there, <laughs> but offering this clean spot for them to stand in. And it flipping worked. And it worked. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And and this is just my second show. And it was so cool because we had a whole little group of street performers that had been encouraging me. And there was like maybe three of them that had seen the first show. And they were like, (laughs) they they knew what it was like because they had done it themselves. But it's always painful to watch. So they were there watching my second show and they were seeing that it was working. And they were all like, what? And so I got it to work. You know, I was just so nice and so bubbly and like I completely changed my attitude and people were loving it. They were eating it up. I got my volunteers to do stuff and everyone was laughing. There was a full circle of people. It wasn't huge, but it was a full circle. And I got to my finale and I look over at the street performers and they all know that I haven't ever done it before. And I'm (laughs) like, uh 
okay, here we go. And I, I get up on them and I'm flipping out. Cause I'm like, I didn't expect to make it this far. <laughs> and I get the girl passes me my torches. I light them. I'm so nervous. I throw a couple up. I drop one of them. I'm like, just pass it back. Just pass it back. She passes <laughs> it back to me. I barely juggle three for like a couple rotations. I catch them and I'm like, thank you. And everyone's like, yay. And I get down and I say, thank you. And I hold out my hat and I made 40 bucks the day before I had made $4 from a mom who felt bad for me. And that day I had made 40 bucks. That was the beginning. All of the other street performers, their minds were blown. They're like, I can't believe you did that. Like all of them, it took them at least a week before they got to their finale. And I got there within a day. Then I was kind of hooked. I'm like, well, I I guess I got a knack for it. Or I guess all that training that I had did something, or I don't know what it was. I just felt very powerful. in my low status. So that was week one and you kind of 10X your return from day one to day two. How mm-hmm. long was Lindsay Benner's street performance career? It was about a 10, 10 year career. I, I had this goal of getting street performing to take me somewhere in the world because I knew that there were street performer festivals all over the world because a friend of mine had just started doing that. The guy who actually gave me that advice of that you've won if you've gathered an edge. And he had just started doing that touring in Canada and, and I don't know if he had made it to Europe yet, but it was like, he had just started. And so I saw that as this goal that I could quit because I felt like, okay, I'm not going to want to do this. I hate this so much. I want to puke every time I go, I get nervous every time. I don't want to keep having to do this, but I do want to get good enough so that I can feel like satisfied that I did this. And I felt like as soon as I get good enough where I get booked at a festival in another part of the world, then I can quit. Then I'm allowed to quit. And what I didn't realize is that if once I got good enough to travel with it, then that meant I kind of had a career. <laughs> and so if I, you know, and as an actor, there's no autonomy as an actor. I mean, there's very little autonomy. There's not no autonomy. There's very little autonomy as an actor. You're always asking for other people to give you an opportunity. You're not in control of what opportunities are available. And though it's my first love and there's part of myself that wishes that I had just stuck with it because I, I loved it so much, this street performing and sort of the variety arts took me on this separate path that had so many different, unusual, unexpected twists and turns to it. And I loved the autonomy I had truly. Like that was the fact that I could choose when to do it, how much to put into it. And I was the one directing the show and I was the one making it happen. I mean, it was the ultimate power, (laughs) you know, it was, and it took me all over the world and it gave me all these incredible adventures that I don't think I would have had as an actor. I was still pursuing acting at the same time that I was street performing. And I never made as much money as an actor as I did as a street performer. So that was something that I think was part of the reason I stayed in it for as long as I did is because it gave me this financial freedom to continue to pursue acting. But then it also took me in this direction of some of the most inspiring performers I ever saw. Like when I was 17, one of the most enlightening performances I saw was Bill Irwin and David Shiner in Full Moon at ACT in San Francisco. And so there are these silent clowns. And that just, when I saw silent clowning, that was like that. It had that Charlie Chaplin sort of feel where it was all, no red noses or anything, but just a lot of physical comedy that just made you laugh 
on this deep, deep level. And it was so simple and so profound to me at the time. I just kind of couldn't talk for a couple of days after I saw it. I thought it was so wonderful. And so I think that there was a part of me that wanted that life as well. Like that was very inspiring to me. So I think that's also a reason why I ended up veering and staying in this lane of the variety arts because I'm very, very inspired by it. Rewinding a little bit to the street performance days and also to Charlie Chaplin. I mean, Charlie Chaplin was one of the best performance artists. And it's amazing that he's more known to be a silent artist with no mm-hmm. verbal communication, but all the other communication. And so I'm curious, how do you unpack that? And also similarly, I'm sure, what makes a good street performance artist? With street performance, that is a very somewhat subjective question because for me, it's all about the connection to character and story. I love a good character street performance, but that doesn't necessarily what makes the biggest, most financially successful street performance. The street performance that I loved the most were sort of the clowns and the guys who figured out how to do it without a whole lot of fanfare or props and things. Like there was kind of this sideline of street performers who their whole machismo was about how little do you need to do a street show? How few props can you pull off a show with? And what was really great about the street performing festivals, and the first festival I did was the World Busker Festival in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. And that is sort of known as one of the crown jewels of the street performing festivals of the whole world. It's everybody wants to go there. It's everybody's favorite festival. And there, it that is the, the woman who curated it and started it. She really focused on character and really getting a lot of different types of street performers in the same place. And I, I really appreciated that angle a lot. So yeah, I'd say when it's character driven, when it makes you just smile and kind of forget and be so present. That's the thing about street shows is that they're just so present in the moment. You don't expect anything and you get insanity. You get like (laughs) people juggling chainsaws and making brooms go up in the air and participating. That's a big part of street performances. I'd say the things that make street performance particularly separate from the things that will make it successful that don't necessarily work in the theater and that can work in the theater. But I'd say the things that really a good street show needs to have is audience participation, like a lot of noise, because the more you hear noise coming from, especially a crowd that's doing noise all together in a sort of unified form, people want to know what's going on. So more people are attracted and then you get a bigger crowd. Crowd control, making sure everybody's standing in the right place and everybody's scooched in as possible, which is a really difficult thing to do. But the best street performers really know what they're doing and know how to do that in a way that people are happy to do it, which is difficult. But that is a huge part of street performance. And it's also you've got to keep people constantly wondering what's going to happen next in some way. And when you begin street performing, Often you do that by actually saying, in a minute, I'm going to, in 10 minutes, I'm going to, in five minutes, I'm going to. And that's kind of this, that's kind of, you can tell a rookie (laughs) when they're doing that. (laughs) And the better you get at it, the more people are doing that themselves. They're thinking, oh, and then what's going to happen? And then, oh, and then, but what are they going to do with that thing? And then, and you know, it, it becomes more of an unspoken, you know, something else is going to happen. And I've got, people are constantly solving problems. That's something I really learned about show structure, no matter where you put it, is that getting the audience to 
be curious about what's happening next and to try and guess what's coming so that they can try and answer it themselves. But they want to know. They want to know it from you. And that keeps them engaged in this very powerful way that is very required for a good street show. The show structure is fascinating to me. Is there a a time period or a certain duration that you found most effective or what you would design your shows to be? 30 minute to 40 minute show is ideal because then if it's at a festival, there's 20 minutes of turnaround time where the next, you know, you can hat your show. It usually takes about five, 10 minutes to hat the show. And then the next performer has enough time. I mean, 30 minutes is ideal, but most performers have at least 40 minute shows, but my shows always ended up, I don't write a ton of material to be honest. Like it's, that's not something that comes (laughs) naturally to me. So I would usually have a shorter show. I'm like such a theater background that for me, I was always kind of coming from a story place. And that's where the Book of Love came from. And I had actually written the Book of Love as a silent cabaret show. And then I looked at that structure and realized that I could take that into a talking street show when I traveled, when I would put it out there because it was a structure that worked. And then I, the book became Something's Gonna Happen Next in, in five minutes because it was a chapter book just the book being out there and being on a certain, you know, chapter one meant that there a chapter two was coming, what was going to happen in chapter two. So there was, that really gave me the structure that a street show needed in order to be successful, but without that annoying in five minutes and 10 minutes, you know, like that kind of a thing. <laughs> I know you do a lot of, you do a variety of art, but you really focused on juggling initially. And before we had spoken in a prior conversation before the show, but you had mentioned the joy of the drop. And I would love to just hear you expand on that because it sounds fascinating, but also there's so much to unpack in that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts there. Yes. So people would come up to me after my shows and be so sweet. And they said, oh my gosh, it's amazing what you can do with juggling. And I I could never learn to juggle. And I would always respond, no, you just don't like dropping. It's all about enjoying the process of learning and learning with juggling is about you drop a lot. And I find that's the same, anything that I really hate the drop, quote unquote, you know, that the like computers, for example, like I get very frustrated when I don't, don't understand how to make something work technically. And so I'm not very good with it because I don't find the joy in that. But when I'm with my friends who are super into computers and something goes wrong with my computer and I'm about to lose my mind, they're (laughs) curious. They're like, Ooh, and they're actually having, they're having fun with it because they understand it. And they know that they're going to get there because they're not afraid of this machine that to me is trying to control the stars. (laughs) I'm like, this is crazy. (laughs) How is it talking to this other thing (laughs) through the air? That doesn't make sense. I find that when I'm learning a new trick, for example, I, I giggle when I drop because it surprises me because I, I don't know what I'm doing and it's fun. And it's this, it's a surprise. The thing with juggling in particular is that it's, it's a muscle memory thing. So it's not something that you can intellectually break down. Why am I not getting this right? Why am I, you know, you can know how, what you're supposed to be doing. You can watch it a million times, but until you have it in your own muscles, you're not going to get it. So there's this other feeling, this other muscle, this other memory, this other brain that is getting engaged that just, it tickles me when I drop. (laughs) And so that's why I'm a juggler is because I enjoy that edge. My favorite juggling acts are ones that incorporate a drop as something that you look forward to. 
So like the street performer has this character, Mario, Queen of the Circus. Mario, Queen of the Circus. And he is obsessed with Queen, the band. He does all of his routines to Queen songs. And he's just a wonderful comedian and character actor and amazing juggler. And he does this whole routine to Another One Bites the Dust. And Another One Bites the Dust is all about every time he drops the ball, it's it's right on time for them to say, Another One Bites the Dust. <laughs> you know, and he just... He lip syncs the whole thing and it's just this big routine and it's a wonderful ball routine and it's technically great. And you look forward to when the drops happen. And it also builds in that if he does drop accidentally, he just waits for the line and then he just points at the ball. And then, so you're just relaxed about dropping because juggling is really hard and you have to be at a very high surface level to never drop a ball. It's very unusual. I think it relaxes the audience and it also relaxes the performer where you can be doing this very difficult thing and there is room for failure. And we actually enjoy seeing the failure. We enjoy that part. It's just a part of the routine. Those are my favorite acts. In my show, I have my opening routine where I build my drop is this opportunity to flirt with a guy in the front row who I end up using in my show and I'll drop the ball and I'll be like, oops. And it's very like pin up. And then I'll bend over as I'm looking at him very seductively and like, <laughs> but bending over right in front of him and a little bit of my skirt comes up and it's like, this little like there's this, you look forward to that moment of silly flirtation, but the dropping. And so anytime I drop, it's just another opportunity for me to escalate the flirtation. So it's something that you look forward to. And that most people actually like, they don't know what the difference is between a planned drop and an accidental drop. That's where it gets really fun, in my opinion. I'm going to steal the joy of the drop. There's so much in that, that it sounds catchy. The idea that there's so much to learn in that. You had mentioned that you describe yourself as very shy. And yet here you are proactively choosing to juggle fire on the street and either yell at people or watch the space that they could go to and then watch you. How did you go from very shy to that? Or do you still think that you're very shy? I still feel naturally quite shy. It's surprising, but it's you'll find a lot of entertainers actually identify as as quite shy. I mean, but I love attention. <laughs> so I think for me, performing is this way to give myself permission to be the center of attention. If I'm doing a show, it's okay for me to be big and loud and brassy. But I think when I'm not in a show, I don't necessarily know my place in that. I'm not an always on kind of a performer. So when I'm not in a show, I tend to be quite quiet and I tend to be kind of stick to myself. And I mean, I'm very open and loving and fun with my friends, but it takes me a second to sort of warm up. And often if I'm with a bunch of performers, I'm particularly quiet because I feel like okay, they don't need me to be on right now. But if I'm with a bunch of people who are a little, if I'm like with a bunch of computer programmers or something, then I turn it on because I'm like, oh, they need this. They need a little entertainment in their lives, you know? So I will <laughs> I will bump it up, you know? So it's kind of like, it just depends on the room. It depends on, on where I'm at. For the most part, I do tend to be a little bit more shy. And I think that that performance is like my therapy of being able to be seen and feel comfortable being seen because it's already at this agreed upon. We've decided that it's okay. How much time do you spend now focusing on increasing your juggling skills versus learning a different type of performance art? Very little. I've been working on relaxing the juggling as a real 
focus of mine. I, I'm getting more into hosting and gathering other performers together. I have a show called Women in Vaudeville that I was doing with, in partnership with the Bob Baker and Marionette Theater here in Los Angeles that is on a hiatus until it's safe for us all together again. But that was a way for me to get a bunch of my favorite powerful female entertainers together and have it be sort of a more variety arts do tend to be a bit male dominated. So to have an opportunity to showcase women and have it be a more female dominated environment for me was a real treat. And so I love curating stuff. I'm focusing more on curating and hosting. And I use the juggling as just kind of this unusual attraction. I often surprise myself though, because I will, once I've stopped doing it for a while, I'll, I'll then get an inspiration to do another juggling. I'm less into innovation with juggling because I'm not, I don't really consider myself a juggler's juggler, if you will. I'm an entertainment juggler. So I use it as a tool to connect with my audience. I I don't use it as a way to innovate and uh, show other people (laughs) new ways of juggling. That's not how I approach juggling. I approach it as sort of a a way to, to connect and a way to shake people out of what they expect. Do you think about entertaining now as a career? And if so, do you set career goals, entertainment goals? Yes, I do. Currently, I have two young children. I had my first child in December of 2017 and my second child in November of 2019. And then the pandemic hit. Right as I was about to go back to work, my live performing was put on more of a hold. So right now, I'm just trying to figure out what would be next. And I, it's a little confusing. So right now, because the children are so young, I'm just trying to focus on them and just listening to myself as much as I can in this place of stillness, because there is, you know, I can't keep busy other than with the children, which is awfully busy, (laughs) but I'm not sure what's next. And I'm not even sure what I want it to be next. So I'm just trying to listen and I'm in receptive mode, as we say. I don't want to just go forward and do something just for the sake of doing. I want to really be committed to it. And right now, I'm, it's not very clear. I'm just waiting to have clarity. Thank you for your honesty in that. And I think a lot of people are just like, no, this is the clear direction. I'm going to do it. And you're like, okay, just get, there's a lot of gray and people don't know when inspiration comes. So I love that, that honesty. I'll, I'll start asking a few of my typical questions I ask my guests. Who or what inspires you? I'm very inspired by Marowa the Amazing. She is a hoop artist and she's also written books about, or she's written a book about puberty for girls. And she has uh, manufactured her own roller skates. And she's just got this beautifully diverse approach to her art form and her entertainment. And I really am so inspired by her. I love her entertainment is, I mean, it's absolute gold. It's top notch. Her skills are incredible and her connection to her audience is incredible. You don't see Marwa and not love her. She doesn't just stop there. You know, I know a lot of entertainers who that's enough. And she just keeps going and she keeps pounding the pavement and follows her inspirations and makes them happen. So I get, I'm very inspired by people like her and by her. (laughs) You had mentioned when you first started learning about street performance that there was a a mentor for you, but was he like the main mentor for you or did you have a role model in this variety arts path that you took? I'd say my, my main 
inspiration was Bill Irwin. He had started as a street performer, but I was very inspired by him. I was very inspired by Eddie Izzard, who was a comedian. And he also started as a street performer in Covent Gardens. And so I, I I had some inspirations of, okay, I love their careers. I love what they do. They bring me so much joy and I want to bring joy honestly the way that they do. I never got to work with, well, no, I did get to work with Bill Irwin once off Broadway for one off show. And that was amazing. <laughs> that was incredible. He saw my show for the first time and he had me close the show, which is kind of a huge honor. So that was like, that blew my mind and, and was kind of like a, a definitely a crown jewel of a memory. <laughs> wow. I had no idea that Eddie Azard started as a street performer. He's one of our favorites at home. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, I know. And he did it for six years. And that was kind of like when I had him, I was like, oh, yeah, let's do it for six years. I got it for 10 years. And I never quite, <laughs> <laughs> never quite made the transition to stand up, but I did make the transition to live stage stuff instead of street performance. So, yeah, he's a great inspiration. He's also so brilliant. Like as a performer, he's noticeably very talented, but his content is mind-blowingly smart to me. And I just, I love the combination of the two. So that's amazing. What are you most proud of so far? I'm proud of being the first woman to win awards and tour in a college market in the United States in my field as a novelty artist and as a juggler. I'm really proud to have created this career out of something so unusual and unique and to have sustained myself for as long as I have. That's something I'm very, very proud of. A lot of my listeners know that I'm a big fan of magic and LA's Magic Castle is one of my favorite destinations. And you are one of the few people who were nominated for an award as a non-magician, which is just incredible. So that should have been my first, that should have been the first thing that I said. I am actually, that is, I'm incredibly proud of that. That is, you know, it's, what's funny about that is that I love the Magic Castle so much. It's such a huge part of my, the last 10 years of my life. It has been the heartbeat of my career in Los Angeles. And anytime I perform there, I weep a little bit because I love it so much. I love the entire way that they set it up and the, the performers. So for me, it doesn't even make sense that I would be nominated for something there because I'm not a magician, but, and they changed rules so that I could be nominated. And then they nominate, I just, I can't even put it into words how much that place means to me. I don't need to be nominated to have that, but I don't know. I guess that's just an external example of how supportive they've been of me and what a big part of my life that they've been. And they, I hope they know I, they mean as much to me as, as I, whatever I've done has meant to them. Well, well done, Magic Castle, for identifying and, and <laughs> helping to retain talent. So kudos to them. Yeah, we talk a great. lot about, so I love the expression, the joy of the drop. And we talk a lot about the, the hardships and failures that is embedded in performance arts. And so whether it's dropping a juggling act or not being able to maintain the edge of the crowd. But I love the idea. And I was talking to Kayla Drescher about this in Magic too, but the feedback loop that you get is instant, right? It either works or it doesn't. And whether you you drop or whether you lose a crowd, I would love to hear you share more of these hardships or if you can share your biggest growth moment. I used to ask this question of what's your most impactful or biggest failure. And inevitably, it always comes back to how much they learned or what their growth lesson was. So I've changed it now to say, can you share your biggest growth moment, whether it's through performance or personally, but I would love to just hear from you because your failure feedback loop is richer than most. I think I've learned over enough experiences doing things that really frighten me. And even when they 
don't go well. Like my first street show at the World Buskers Festival, for example, I tanked. I tanked really hard. And that experience was, I was so terrified, you know, I was so terrified to, and I was the only solo female performer that year. And it's probably the reason why I was booked because <laughs> there weren't many of us. And I didn't, I only had three years of experience when everyone else had at least 10 years of experience. And I was really afraid of failure in that moment. And I think I pushed through and I kept doing the shows and they progressively got better. What's interesting, what's something that happened to me, and this happens, I've had some friends who discovered this as well. I got this crick in my neck, right? This like crick in my neck that, that was, it made it really painful to turn my head. And I got it like on the second day of the festival. And so I couldn't, I had to be very conscious about how I moved my head and how I performed. And it was a very physical show. So it brought all of my attention to moving without pain rather than how frightened I was to do the shows. And I think that after the festival ended, my pain went away the next day. And so I learned (laughs) I learned that my body has this way of protecting me and that sometimes pain is a way to distract when I can't really process what it is that I'm afraid of and how interesting that is that the body works like that. that it, you know, and I've heard people have this when they have chronic back pain, that sometimes it is coming from a place where you don't, you have unresolved feelings or unresolved issues or something like that. So that was an interesting learning experience. I don't know if that's quite what you're after. So you'd mentioned this is the big moment for you, this big event, and you had a few years experience. Why do you think that you tanked? I'm sure it wasn't from lack of preparation and practice, but why do you think, was it just nerves or what do you think it was? I think it was do, you know, you get used to doing a show in a certain space. And then suddenly when you're, this was my first time traveling and doing a show in a completely new space. And so I didn't know what the space was. It was a completely new way of doing a show for me. I had never done a show outside. You get used to, it's like cooking in a kitchen that you're used to. And then suddenly you're given a kitchen that has completely different utensils or ingredients or whatever. And then you have to make the same thing and it's not always going to go well. So I think that was the initial thing that I had to learn is because you were in a festival, you usually do, especially in this festival, you do a show in different parts of the city because the whole city becomes the Buskers Festival. And so learning how to make my show work in different environments and learning what I particularly needed to make that happen when I didn't have what I'm used to having at home, which is like, I had a literal circle cobblestone that was easy for me to get people to stand by. And I didn't have that anymore. I had to learn all of these things that you just don't know until you're there. And there's a certain amount of, you can't fake experience. When you see a street performer who knows that it's going to go well, because they just know you are relaxed. If you see a street performer who's afraid, you are afraid. That's something that I, that also, you know, you just got to, as they say, fake it till you make it. And it's true. <laughs> it's true. You had mentioned that for pretty much 10 years, as you were performing, you were nervous the entire time before and during, mm-hmm. are you still, do you still have those nerves before performing? Yes, I do. They're, they are different depending on the circumstance. So like when I perform at the castle, I always get a little bit of butterflies, but I'm never like sick to my stomach. I'm usually more excited to do it because I love that environment so much. It's they're, they're just such a buttery audience. So ready for you to be good that it's great. But 
performing at colleges all over the U.S. Talk about being thrown into all different kinds of situations and all different kinds of environments. So having to work with anything that you get thrown is, is something that I had to learn how to do. Great. What's next for Lindsay Benner? Pick up my kids. (laughs) 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 We're the babysitter right now, but I'm, let's see, what's next for Lindsay Benner? I get to innovate and do stuff online. I don't know what that looks like yet, but it's time for me to figure out how to make my entertainment work in the digital world. And so I think that's, that's what's next for me. I don't know exactly how that's going to look. I I've got to get inspired (laughs) pandemic aside. I think what's next for me is bringing people together to do variety shows and pushing the culture forward that we don't really have in the U S of variety shows as, as a real form of entertainment that is not only valid, but preferred (laughs) because I personally prefer variety entertainment over any other type. And it's such an old fashioned kind of entertainment right now. And people kind of don't understand it or understand why, why go to a variety show? You know, it's kind of weird. Like, what are they doing? I feel that there is lots to be had culturally from variety entertainment and the silliness of it, the heart in it, the variety, like true variety, not just in tricks or whatever, but in the experience of it, it's not just comedy and it's not just poignancy. It's like this mix of heart and comedy and laughter and connection. I'd love to keep moving that dial in whatever way I can so that more people get to experience it. Well, where can people find out more about Lindsay Benner? At lindsaybenner.com. Yeah, lindsaybenner.com. That's my website that gives all up-to-date things that I'm up to. Awesome. Well, I know that we started the show talking about, you know, juggling fire in the air. And certainly now as a working mom, you're still juggling Mm -hmm. fire, maybe not in the (laughs) air, but still a lot of things up there. So I love this conversation. Thank you so much for for making the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a great podcast idea. I love it. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. 